0: Young people need to, when given the opportunity, just bloom where you're planted, be great at what you do. And eventually, and it may not be in the time that you want, but talent is always recognized.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, the CUSP show, where we talk about the business of sports, media, recruiting, Gen Z, digital, disruption, a little bit of everything. I'm Joe Favorito, along with my co host, Tom Richardson. Tom, here we are at the end of February, 2022. Wow, yeah. And um, Joe, the best news about um,
2: today's conversation is that we're a few days away from the month of March, which is a a key turning point, I think, as we get through the Northeastern winter and look forward to uh, what should be a a much better spring, um, hopefully post-pandemic back on campus, I had one of the great moments of the last years a few days ago when I went to the campus for my class in person, Mm -hmm. and it was that gorgeous. It was Wednesday, August the 23rd. Um, I don't know if you happen to be outside that day. It was a gorgeous day. Ended up getting to be 65 in New York City, Mm -hmm. and when I turned the corner coming off of 116th, you know, through College Walk, and looked up at Low Library, the steps were packed, and I hadn't Mm -hmm. seen that image in two years, and it's really one of the great sights. Uh, at Columbia, of course, and it just, I, th- I think every, you could just tell everybody was feeling really good and, and really positive about mm-hmm. uh, these changes that are coming. So that was a, a really nice moment for, for me this week.
1: Yeah, and and one, one just quick note as we look forward into March. Um, hopefully you and I will be at the Sloan MIT analytics conference next Friday mm-hmm. which ironically will be almost two years to the day from the last time I saw you in person because that was <laughs> exactly. the last exactly. time I saw you, yeah two years it's ago. insane
2: and we actually had the Columbia cocktail reception and the NYBC yes. sports party where I, I think the only way we, we uh, the only thing we did Joe to uh, to express our concern about this coming pandemic because it wasn't quite there yet. Yep. Uh, in terms of public panic, was that instead of shaking hands, we were fist bumping and elbow yep.
1: tapping. <laughs> yep. Speaking of um, the evolution in young people and engagement, because there will be a lot of engagement, uh, we have a special guest today uh, who we both heard speak on a, um, a faculty call way, way back when he worked at Notre Dame, back in another iteration of his career. Because since we did that, and we since we started having a dialogue about coming on the, the uh, podcast, as uh, the coaching business is, it's a little bit fluid, and he's moved on to a new opportunity uh, at LSU. And we're going to talk not as much about coaching and football, but about young people engagement and, and the lessons learned in a book that he has written um, about how you really kind of engage and learn about young people. So Brian Polian. LSU assistant football coach right now, welcome to The Cusp Show.
0: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much.
2: Um, Brian, I'll, I'll uh, start with this. since you know, Joe, As Joe mentioned, we had the pleasure of listening to you a few months back, and it was a fascinating conversation. But what's interesting to me is that you've had a, a pretty um, a, a long and, and um, successful career as a coach in, in different forms and, 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 and different teams and stuff like that. But as you thought of, I guess the book was published in 2020, correct? Yes. So obviously, writing a book is a big endeavor. You Mm -hmm. must have been thinking about it for years. (laughs) And I imagine it's fair to say, and I think you might have conveyed this to us when you visited the faculty call, was that this was kind of the culmination of a lot of years of experience and insights that you gained along the way. So can you talk about how your thoughts on, on this whole topic really evolved as your career Developed in these different positions.
0: Sure. It. It. um, Well. Well. First, just to to give our listeners a little context, I am I am uh, born and raised in football. In the way that a child of a military officer would call themselves an army brat, Uh, I am a football brat. So my father, Bill Polian, a New York native of the Bronx, uh, and and uh, uh, you know a a proud uh, Irishman was um, started off as a high school history teacher and high school coach in New York City, eventually found his way into personnel and uh, throughout a storied 35-year career uh, culminated in induction in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So um, my dad's journey through pro football, uh, I, I grew up in, in the game was fascinated by it from an early age. And when I tell you, I don't know if I'm lucky or if I'm a little bit simple, probably a combination of both. At the age of 16, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to coach. I grew up in the Buffalo Bills training camps, um, hip to hip with Marv Levy and Elijah Pitts and Don Lawrence and Bruce DeHaven, these incredible coaches, and and I looked at their relationships with the players and I said, Okay, uh, this is what I want for my life. So from the moment I graduated John Carroll University, I graduated John Carroll University in 1997. In mid May on June 1st, I was a graduate assistant coach at Michigan State for Nick Saban. So literally had about two weeks off and then it was time to go start a career. you know, as most young people do in the early stages of my career, I was concerned with advancement. I was concerned with recognition. I was concerned with money, um, perception and, um, went that way for nearly 20 years and was very fortunate in every move that I made was a move up. Um, started to make some real money, started a family, all those things. And, um, always enjoyed the relationships that I developed with the players, but my focus would meander back to career advancement and all the things that I was looking for. I became the head coach at the university of Nevada at 39 years old. And, um, we had, we suffered a tragedy. We lost a, uh, we lost a player, um, under my watch, that that it was the most difficult thing uh, I've I've ever dealt with professionally. We had a young man drown in Lake Tahoe with six other teammates witnessed it, as as did some female student athletes. They were all up there together. It was uh, a young lady had fallen off a board was struggling. Our, our this young man on our team, Mark Ma, witnessed it. Jumped in to try and save her, and unfortunately, Mark lost his life. And through the process of trying to lead our football family and our players and support them as best I could through that tragedy, it changed my outlook on what we were doing, on what my profession was completely. Uh, And it it really, um, it just showed a light on um, why i was doing what i was doing and and how important it was to connect with these young people on a personal level to know them as individuals to go out of your way to build bridges with them and how important that was and and to be honest with you guys it's gonna sound funny that 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 season we finished five and seven uh, I lost my job at the end of the year and i'm that is the most proud i've ever been of a single season because we kept that team together we battled our tails off won the last two games um you know i'm very proud of the job that our football team and our staff did so as you step back in our profession you get let go you step back you you take a deep breath you reflect what could i have done better uh what would i change what did we do well um it occurred to me like I was way too late in terms of recognizing the importance of the relationships with the young people. And then as that started to kick around in my head, um, it just occurred to me, Hey, the kids we're coaching now are so much different than what they were just 10 years ago and just started to do a little bit of research and talk to people. And there was a, uh, there was a, a, a really interesting conversation that, that, I had on a recruiting visit in an all boys Catholic high school outside of Worcester, Massachusetts, where coach Kelly and I are sitting with the headmaster and um, we're waiting for a prospect to come downstairs. And coach Kelly said to the gentleman, he said, you've been in charge of the school for 20 years. What can you tell us? What can we learn from you? And uh, the gentleman said, "Um, before you have to, before you ask any of these young men to honor a task, you have to honor the relationship first. And that statement just crystallized everything that I was feeling and everything that I had been thinking about. And I just started to delve into it. And I built a, I built a clinic presentation, a coach's clinic presentation. And as is often the case in our business, you'll get asked, hey, can you come in and talk? for an hour on special teams and talk about punt talk about drills, whatever. And every time I said, yes, I requested, I said, yeah, I will do whatever you want, but I want another hour because I want to talk about this topic. And that's where this whole thing started. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say that it took going through that tragedy together as a team for me to reprioritize and kind of reexamine what my motivations were in my business. But I am happy to say that at this point, I feel like you know we've got things straightened out.
2: Brian, mm-hmm. after you started to share that presentation more broadly, what kind of reception did you get? Were people buying in?
0: Yes, I was stunned. Um, I, one of the last times I did it before the pandemic hit was at the Indiana High School Coaches Association. I drove from South Bend down to Indianapolis and had a ballroom filled with people and i did exactly what i described i did an hour of film and hardcore x's and o's and technique and then the second hour i went out and did the the presentation about you know honor the relationships and working with generation z and the amount of coaches that approached me outside in the hallway like wow we i've never heard anything like this before nobody ever nobody's ever addressed this topic before. Um, I was stunned by the response. I thought that I was almost being a little preachy, like, hey, this means something to me. And because I have the opportunity to share it, I'm going to choose to do so. The amount of people that came back and said, we, we need to have more conversations like this. Uh, I, was really, I was shocked by that. Uh,
1: in, in the book, you talk a little bit about how uh, relationships have evolved and, and the recruiting process today and the respect. And so, so when you, as a, as a staff or you as other coaches, when you talk to other coaches, what's it like today when you're trying to engage young people versus even three or four years ago, what are some of those traits, especially the ones you touch on in the book that, that you have to bring to light when trying to develop relationships with, with people who may be a little bit younger or from different backgrounds?
0: Well, I think the first thing for me is I'm going to be genuine. I'm I'm not going to try to pretend to be something or someone that I'm not. I think the worst thing that we can do with a young person is for me to get on the phone and start talking about Drake lyrics. Like, they know I don't listen to Drake. So I, I think it's completely disingenuous to try to be something that you're not. Now, at the same time, it's our job to meet them where they live, right? I'm not fantastic with technology. I'm just not, I don't enjoy it. It's, it's not something that I'm constantly trying to learn. I got other things in my life that are prioritized, but I have to learn technology because the the reality of it is I can have very, um, forthcoming, honest, sincere, and productive conversations with a prospect, with a recruit via text which I would have thought that 10 years ago, there's no way. Like if I'm going to have a real conversation with somebody, we're going to sit face to face and we're going to talk. Um, I, I think we, we gotta, we have to understand too often in our world in recruiting, it's almost as though it's a sales pitch. Hey, let me tell you why LSU is a great fit for you as opposed to, Let's start from a place of, tell me what's important to you. Exactly. Tell me what's important. Tell me who's important to you. Who Who's the most important person or people in your life? What is it that you are looking for? And i it serves two purposes. It, it becomes a more sincere communication. It becomes more honest. It also saves us some time because if I, talk to a California kid who says, I'm interested in staying on the West coast. Then I know I can wish him the best of luck and move on to the next, you know, Mm -hmm. if, if, you know, if I'd started dating my wife and she said, listen, I only like tall guys, you know, who are Italian. I'd have been out at the get-go and I wouldn't know it. So, you know, I, I think our ability to ask more questions to be intentional listeners to hear, and, and to uh, be able to uh, have a willingness to communicate in ways that we may not be comfortable with, right? I don't. I'm not necessarily comfortable with a 30-minute text exchange, but with Generation Z, some young people are far more comfortable expressing themselves through that venue, through a DM, than they would be sitting across from you in your office, and we we have to adjust to that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, th- this kind of came to a head for you uh, with what happened uh, at Nevada and then in the other stops that you've had both before and since, are there still, I would imagine there's still some traits that you picked up from, you know, your dad's legendary career, especially with the Bills and the Colts and being around Mar- Marv Levy and Ted Marchabroda and so- some of the other coaches. What are some of the things that have translated throughout time that, that haven't really changed that you've now just been able to kind of finesse a little bit some of those traits
0: well i think the great ones were always ahead of the curve like um the thought of hey i'm going to undress a player in front of the peer in front of his peers and cuss him out and embarrass him 15 years ago that it was commonplace but marv levy would never do that if marv Mm -hmm. levy or tony dungy or jim caldwell or some of the great guys i've had the opportunity to to, to be around. If there was really an issue with a player, they wouldn't address it in front of the whole team and embarrass that person in front of their peers. That would be a one-on-one conversation. And it would be, let's get this corrected. Tony Dungy would, would not raise his voice when he was upset. He would raise his voice in joy, but if he was upset, he would stay, he would almost lower (laughs) his voice because he wanted the players to have to strain to hear him and, 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 Therefore they're, they're more concentrated on what he has to say. Um, My father's uh, my father's devotion to every player, staff member, coach that ever worked in the same organization. I took that with me from a very early age. My dad is incredibly loyal to his people. Um, And, I actually got a little bit spoiled because I looked at the family atmosphere that was created in Buffalo and the family atmosphere that was created in Carolina and then ultimately in Indianapolis, which culminated with the Super Bowl. Um, and I thought that that was commonplace, but it's not. You know, there is no, hey, there are a lot of places where a spouse could have a child and there aren't people lined up to m- make sure that. Meals are being brought over. You know, you, you just learn that it's not like that everywhere. So, uh, when I did have the opportunity to run an organization, I was going to be, um, I was going to be sure to to model those things that I'd learned at an early age, and, and try to recreate those things. And now, even though I'm not the head of the organization, I'm in charge of certain facets, and and we're gonna you know, we're gonna treat our people the right way and communicate and do all those things that I learned when I was a kid.
2: So Brian, is it a little bit of a 21st century, 21st century version of what we used to call the player's coach? I think about the contrast. I played football when I was young and the coaches were old school coaches back, yeah. back in that era. Uh, a somewhat abusive mean, they didn't care about relationships. It, it wasn't exactly a lot of fun which was the way a lot of football environments were. But then like in the nineties, you think about the contrast between guys like Bill Walsh, let's say on the one end of the spectrum and Mike Ditka on the other end, who was more old school, that old idea of the players coach was always interesting to people who followed sports. Cause if I, I think most players would have said, would you prefer to work for an old school mean guy or one of these new fangled players coaches, they would take the latter. And it seems like that model has kind of been proven out in this century that that kind of coaching seems to actually produce better results.
0: Yeah, I think there's a misconception as to what a player's coach is. I mean, a player's coach is not somebody that is um, that doesn't instill discipline or doesn't set standards. Right. Uh, A player's coach is somebody that's going to be relationship driven, that is going to be available, that's going to communicate, that is open to suggestion that it's not, Hey, that's my way or the highway. Um, And, and I used to tell our Nevada team this all the time, like discipline is an expression of love. I set a standard and I'm going to hold you to it because I love you. Because if, if I didn't set standards and just let you run amok, when you leave our program and our university, you get out into the real world, it's, it's not going to work. Like, you don't live up to the standards there. You end up with severe consequences. So, the the misconception of the players' coach does not does not instill discipline, does not you know uphold standards. That that's that's a myth. But you can be. Uh, I would take the stance that Brian Kelly is a great example. Brian Kelly um, practically reinvented himself between 2016 and 2017. Notre Dame comes off a four and eight year, and and he decides that I've got to refocus my energy on the culture of the program, on steady communication with the players, and I'm going to hire good people in the world of the X's and O's and empower them to do their jobs. And as a result of that, of being less concerned about offensive plays and more concerned about where the players are at and, and, and making sure that the culture around the program's healthy. He goes 54 and eight after that hitting that reset. So now I would tell you, Ryan Kelly is a disciplinarian. I mean, we have standards and we're going to hold those players to them. But I would also say that um, he is a player's coach because he's going to communicate and he's going to listen and he's going to be focused on culture and he's going to be worried about their best interests. So, um, there has been a shift. What the perception of the shift is, though, and the reality often are a little bit different.
2: Who who do you think embodies the the new coaching style best right now? Let's say in the NFL, like f- names we might be familiar with.
0: I mean, certainly, well, well, Tony Dungy and Jim Caldwell were always this way, right? Marv Levy was always this way but i think if, if if we're you know talking about what's going on now it's i mean a younger version would be coach mcveigh
2: right i
0: mean you look mm-hmm. at the the joy and the re, the joy he has interacting with the players the the respect now i know people within that organization there are standards there those guys don't run wild mm-hmm. but at the same time you can tell he 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 treats them with respect and is interested in what they have to say. And, and I'm sure when he's making a correction, he's not embarrassing people. Now you could look at Washington. I mean, anybody who's ever played for Ron Rivera, they love it because former player, he understands, uh, you know, so it, it's not an age thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's an approach. It's a mentality.
1: When you look outside, and I'm sure you've gotten, especially in the last few years when you were at Notre Dame, uh, heads of businesses who come come in and say, "Hey, how does this adapt to me? Do you see the adaptable traits?" And if you've spoken to any businesses or know of corporations that do this right that you admire, saying, "Hey, you know, these this is a, this is a business that does it right." That's the first part. The other part is you've obviously been around a lot of highly motivated, testosterone-driven. Male, male athletes. What about women? Have, have you seen it translate over to women's sports, especially given the growth of women's sports
0: in the last couple of
1: years? So the business sure. side and the women's sports side.
0: Sure. The business side first. I, I One of the great pleasures of this journey has been, uh, I presented this topic at the Athletes First Summit. Um, I want to say it's got to be two summers ago now. Maybe it was mm-hmm. last summer. I can't remember. Um And Greg Brown, the CEO of Motorola was in the room and he approached me afterwards and we just started what has become a very valuable friendship and mentorship for me uh, to have access to somebody like that. And just trading notes about what he was experiencing with younger people that he was working with, Um, you know, some of the topics that we talked about how they fit the the corporate business culture. And it was um, the, the, the amount of carryover was amazing. I got a lot of feedback from people that read the book that said, this is not a football book. And then, and I hope people understand this. The football in the, in the book is anecdotal. It's just a way to, you know, kind of tell the story, but it's not a football book. It's a book about connecting with young people. I've been stunned by the amount of people who, Uh, have reached out from the business community and said, this applies to me when I'm recruiting um, prospects out of colleges to come work for my company. This has helped me in terms of even things like uh, giving feedback, how, you know, what, how generation Z is constantly seeking feedback yet. If the feedback's negative, they have a difficult time (laughs) processing that. So just you know, some of the minutia that we talk about in the book, people have said that they found, um, they found very helpful. I have gotten a lot of positive feedback as it relates to women's sports as well, because I, th- I think, listen, this is not a male, female thing. It is a generational thing. It yeah. is, it is, it is. And, and I know as many, if not more female athletes that are alpha personalities that are driven that want to succeed as you know we're dealing with in the men's world um you you know one of my closest friends in all of sports is the women's lacrosse coach at at ohio state amy bacher she and i were neighbors together at stanford i mean the issues that she and i talk about on her team uh, are the same issues that we're talking about on our team so I, i don't there's no divide there you know through gender it's a divide that exists through
1: age. Along, along with that age, um, you t- touch on attention in the book. And I was fortunate enough that my son got a new Apple phone. So I was exposed to Apple TV and got to watch Ted Lasso. And yeah. uh, an amazing, amazing, so well-written two years of stuff. I can't wait for season three. But you know, he touches on the goldfish strategy of nine seconds. And you touch on even a faster strategy. Uh, of trying to engage. Um, how important is quick messaging w- with what you're doing and your approach? And um, how did you come up with the, the kind of the strategy of how fast you have to adapt somebody and how fast is it when you're looking at young people these days versus other years?
0: No, it's, it's, we have to change the way that we teach. I mean, lesson plans are structured differently. The way meetings are set up are structured differently. The way that we seat them in a classroom setting are structured differently. It has, it has changed a great deal. And, um, you know, I have a son that struggles with ADHD, severe anxiety, uh, he battles a little bit of depression, uh, you know, and that journey with my son was part of, of the discovery of, I'm coaching kids just like him right now. And for me to think that somebody can sit in a classroom setting right now for 45 straight minutes and I'm not doing anything to engage them. And I'm just going to get up there and drone on and on and on. It's unreasonable. So the way that we've attacked, this is um, from the very get-go, I'm going to tell you what we're trying to accomplish in the meeting, right? All right. First, first 12 minutes are going to be on punt. Second, 12 minutes are going to be on punt return. I'm never going to go longer than 20 minutes without giving everybody a a 30 second break to And I'm literally going to stand them up out of their seats and tell them, shake out your leg, roll your neck. Let's go. We're going to, I'm turning the lights on. I want them to, to get a 30 second break and hit the reset button. We set up our meeting rooms so that we have high tops for that ADHD guy that can't sit still uh, that, that, that needs to move around. I'm not going to fuss with, I'm not going to get mad at that kid because he can't, sit still i'm going to give him a place where he can stand up and put his notebook or his ipad out and as long as he's listening to me i'm okay with um we we do things like you know and again i this book is not an academic work i'm very quick to point that out and i don't proclaim to be a scientist but studies have shown that white noise in the room will help the ADHD brain focus, right? So after I'm done installing, teaching, for lack of a better term, when I'm done teaching my lesson, and we're now going to watch film, I put music on in the room. Now, it's not going to be so loud that it overwhelms me that I have to compete with it. And I'm going to let the players choose what they want to hear so it keeps them engaged, right? But we're going to have a little music on in the background. Like these are all things that 15 years ago, Bill Parcells would have killed one of his assistant coaches (laughs) if they allowed players to wander around the back of the room during the meeting. But we have to adjust. And really part of the, the, part of the theme of my book was I am in this, I think, and I've said this out loud at two coaches and administrators and GMs and ADs, The coaching profession is at a crossroad right now. And I would imagine to a certain degree, the teaching profession is at a crossroads right now. There are guys like me, I'm 46, 47 years old. I have to adjust what I learned coming up and what I'm used to and what I'm comfortable with. I have to leave my comfort zone because if I don't in two or three years, I'm going to become obsolete. I have to teach differently. I have to coach differently differently. I have to recruit differently. And I have seen over the last three or four years, these dinosaurs that refuse to change, that kick a kid while he's in a three-point stance. I mean, he's in a three-point stance and I'm going to run up behind him and kick him in the tail or I'm going to cuss him out. I'm going to grab his face mask and shake him up while I'm yelling at him. Those guys are being ushered out. On the flip side of it, we have young people that are terrific communicators right? They, they chest bump. They do all the handshakes. They know all the music. They wear Air Jordans and joggers every day to work. But the problem is they're not quite ready to lead. They're not technically proficient enough yet. Like there's a have seen a generation of coaches get promoted too fast, often white ones, by the way, uh, mm-hmm. who get promoted too fast. And you can see the quality of work uh, the coaching's not great. So those those who are technically proficient and experts in what they do have to adjust. Because if they don't, they're going to be out. And the level of what's happening of our game will go down because the guys who are promoted up through the ranks aren't quite ready yet. And, and that's the challenge to guys my age, right? I was raised in an old school house by an old school guy with old school ways. That's what I was used to as a player and as a young coach, right? I'm 25 years in right now. I consider myself an expert in the kicking game, but I cannot use that expertise if I won't change the way that I build relationships with the kids that I'm coaching and the way I communicate, the way I teach. And that is the challenge we face right now. Brian, and that was uh, long winded. I apologize. No, no that, was, nope, that was not at
2: all. This is a really interesting topic and related um, 2 part question. Joe and I were lucky, um, very lucky the last couple of months. I have a couple of amazing guests in the world of football. So Hall of Famer Brian Dawkins and a few shows ago um, and Super Bowl champion Aaron Taylor, now a college broadcaster for CBS. They were both incredibly, I'd say, brutally honest about some of the issues with mental health that young athletes, particularly elite athletes are facing. Um, It was, I mean, I think Joe would agree, some of the best conversations we've had on this podcast, which we've been doing for seven years. Um, And it's good to see that getting discussed more openly. So the two part question is this, how are you dealing with that as as an adjunct or um, an ancillary, shouldn't really ancillary, that's too cheap a word, as another um, parallel issue? with just the actual coaching and leadership. So the mental health side, because all these programs have strength and conditioning coaches, are there therapists and mental health experts also helping out? And secondly, related, and this is something Aaron Taylor got into that Joe and I really have never never discussed, even though we've covered NIL a lot, is the new level of pressure that a lot of elite athletes are facing with this whole idea of marketing and monetization while they're trying to deal with everything else in college and elite athletics.
0: Okay, so let's attack the first part. Me- I think mental health has always been an issue with with young people. I mean, it's not all of a sudden we're hitting a crisis. We're just recognizing it. The ADHD child 25 years ago was just a kid that couldn't sit still, right? Mm-hmm. Your kid just can't sit still. No, the science has proved there's a chemical in his brain that's missing, you know, so I think as time moves on, we start to recognize different challenges. I also think culturally, we are at a much, I think it's a much more difficult time right now to be a college athlete on an elite level than it was, say, 25 years ago. Let's take Ron Paulus, for example. Okay, Ron Paulus is a dear friend of mine. He's on the Notre Dame staff as an administrator. When Ron Paulus came out of high school in Berwick, Pennsylvania, He was the number one quarterback in the country. And Bino Cook went on television and said, this guy's going to win three or four Heisman. The pressure that was put on a 17, 18-year-old kid to go to Notre Dame, who at the time was the premier program in the country, and not only just try to be a starter and be a productive player, but now one of the loudest voices in college football said, if he doesn't win three or four Heismans, his career is not successful. imagine what that felt like now fast forward that to 2022 when everybody's got a cell phone and twitter and instagram and so we're dealing in a different time and it's one thing for me to sit a guy down and say hey man listen just stay off social media i'm 46 years old i don't have the ability to do that Mm -hmm. i keep saying 46 i'm 47 i'm trying to deny my youth right um Um, I did a press conference two days ago for the first time here at LSU, right? It was my first time being in front of the media since I've come here. And, um, I got on social media and I wanted to see what the response was because in the end, I felt like I could glean something productive out of it. And for every 10 things, somebody says, that's nice. There's, there's one guy in South Bend that says, good. We're glad you left. You suck. And that. (laughs) as a human being who can deal, who can look at that and be unaffected by it. And I'm an adult that knows better. And I'm a person that knows that it's the crazy minority that hides behind an avatar and spews that venom on a keyboard. In my right mind, I know that. But if you're 18, 19, 20 years old and you've grown up in the digital age, And your phone has always been in your hand. And you live in that space. And now your self-worth is going to be in some part affected by what people say about you in that space. We can't ignore that. 75% of the young people that make it to the National Football League feel like they're not worthy and don't belong there those are the elite of the elite and three quarters of them have a bad self-image that's what we're up against as teachers so that's the battle that we face with their mental health with their well-being with their self-image so I was asked at, at by Mike Tannenbaum uh, on ESPN and the 3013 group he said if if you were starting in NFL franchise today if we we made you the head coach of an NFL franchise what would one of the first things that you would do differently than what you grew up around I would hire a full-time mental health professional Wow not somebody that's contracted out the way a chiropractor is I want a full-time mental health professional in the building so that when our players feel like they need somebody to talk to besides a coach besides an administrator, that there's a mental health professional there, and then as we're evaluating in our world prospects in the NFL world, draftable, you know, players that we we have that person to tell us, you know, can we can we evaluate? So, um, that's the first part of it. Remind me the second part of the question. I apologize. So, so the
2: influence of NIL. I think Joe. Yes. Just remind me, Joe, if this is correct. I think you're the first guest we've had on. We've had coaches on before but we have not had a college coach on the show since NIL became the thing last year. Correct. So what Aaron was saying was that the, the, the bright side is, hey, th- these people who are gen- helping generate a lot of money for, for athletic programs, great. They deserve some compensation. That's the part that everybody loves to talk about. The other side of the coin is the fact that there's an additional level of pressure put on them as they are hounded by or trying to talk to would-be agents or brands, companies, agencies, et cetera, that want their celebrity for something completely unrelated to their kind of day job of being a student athlete?
0: Well, I I think we're going to look back in five years at the infancy of name, image, and likeness, and we're going to look at the people that had the biggest deals, and we're going to study – you know, we're going to study how many failed and how many succeeded because yep. Spencer Rattler was one of the first guys to have seven figures. Spencer Rattler is already transferred out of Oklahoma. Um young at, at Clemson is doing national Dr. Pepper commercials, you know, and, and then trying to live up to the shadow of Trevor Lawrence and ch- national championships. And there's, members of the Clemson fan base that may not feel like that, that team is, is living up to what, what they're supposed to. It, it, it's just level. It just adds another level of pressure that an 18, 19, 20 year old probably is not prepared for. So then we say, okay, what kind of support system do we have around them? Well, unfortunately there are a lot of cases where that young person at 18, 19, 20 years old, it becomes the breadwinner for the family. And as is the case with 22-year-old draft picks who go to the NFL, the entourage gets bigger and bigger because everybody wants a piece of the action. And I fear for young people. I fear for um, – I, I, look, there's got to be a happy medium here somewhere. There has to be. I don't know what it is. We've got to find it.
1: Yeah. regulation, um, regulation from the NCA would be helpful. That would be the first piece. So,
0: yeah. And I have um, some pretty firm yeah. feelings about that, but they're not you public consumption, <laughs> um, um, you, you know, but, but, you know, there are so many unforeseen uh, circumstances and, and results of name, image, and likeness. And, and the, the stress it puts on an, a, a young person is incredible because now you have to live up to that deal. And if you don't live up to that deal, everybody's going everybody's gonna to look and point and, and judge you, and, and you've got to be able to deal with that. The other part of this thing, too, is, is um, you know, how are we educating them to prepare them for these things? Like, there's got, we, as universities, we have to, we have to, we got to get involved. And and mm-hmm. because the rules have been so um, convoluted, and 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 provided, I mean, some of this stuff is being guided by state law in individual states, and and so it's it's difficult. But we need to provide as universities, we need to provide more support for them.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, one last question from me, and I don't know if Tom's got another one, and then we can get to our final questions, but. Flipping, flipping, kind of the the narrative. One of the things I saw a couple of weeks ago, and I forget it was by a coach, and said, you know, we understand the pressure that's on the athlete and what we're doing. We're in a high-pressure situation. How much attention should be paid to the mental health of a coaching staff, and and is that done? Uh, and the example I I would think of is, you know, Coach Kelly yourself, other coaches left Notre Dame. I would imagine there was tremendous angst and anxiety for the kids you're leaving behind? Um, And is there when you get to a school like LSU or anywhere or the Steelers or wherever it is, someone sitting there and saying, let's figure out how we keep these guys healthy because if we can't mentally keep them mentally focused and and informed, um, how are they supposed to go out and lead? Is is that something that ever comes up?
0: Uh, It comes up in the good places. It comes up with guys like Andy Reid and Bruce Arians who Mm. who say – you know, if you, if you miss your your child's high school basketball game, that's your fault, right? Yeah. You know, there, there are places that say, hey, at, at noon, I don't care what you're doing. Put it down. I want you to go work out because we need you healthy. Um, a lot of people will look at what we do and say, listen, you're rewarded financially. And that is to a certain degree true at the highest levels. Now, I made no money. When I started, I made no money whatsoever. My wife, my wife was the breadwinner for, for the early stages of my career. working in, in, um, in development at a, at a local college in Buffalo. But, um, and and I worked a hundred hour weeks, then just like I do now. So, so the way that, that we attack this professionally is not dictated by the money, but people will look at us and say, well, listen, I mean, you, you, you're paid well and, and, Part of the deal is that you have to understand all of these things come with the job. I will tell you this, going through some of the struggles that I went through with um, dealing with the death of Mark Ma at Nevada, and then the transition to being being let go, the transition to Notre Dame, and then the struggles that my son has gone through. uh, I finally just said, listen, I need to talk to somebody. I can't put this on my wife. She's my partner. It's not her job to carry my burden. I need to talk to somebody. And, and in my profession, that might be actually frowned upon because we're all macho. And, you know, mm. I'm Irish. We'll swallow it and carry it like a like heartburn, <laughs> you know. So but I just I got to a point in my own life where I said I, I've i got to talk to somebody um, and was fortunate enough to to have a mental health professional that I was friends with and just asked. Said, listen, can I can I come see you? I I need to talk through some of this stuff and found it incredibly helpful. Uh it changed my outlook. Um I have always been dedicated to exercise because I love working out. Um I be you know, was lucky enough to get one of the last Pelotons in before the pandemic hit. <laughs> love that thing and the elliptical and you know, I, I love the the physical exertion that helps me hit the reset but but never paid much attention to sleep certainly didn't pay any attention to how i was eating and um have discovered that it's not a good idea to crush a pint of ben and jerry's every other night at you know (laughs) at 10 30 and that uh you know you know mcdonald's has got to be a treat not a staple you know so and that you have to get some sleep because if, if I'm not in a good frame of mind, if not, if I'm not in a good place, then how am I serving these young people? Right. Yes. It starts with us. I've also gotten to the point we talked about before where my motivation, I think this has a lot to do. Joe, I'm I'm really glad you asked this question because I think it has a lot to do with motivation. If I'm constantly If I spend my days right now being upset about, I feel like I didn't get a fair opportunity to be a head coach at the last place. Why have I not gotten that opportunity since Uh, look at some of these people that are getting jobs. I know I'm more qualified than that guy. Why is it that I can't, I will walk around upset. I'll walk around with a negative vibe, but I think when you come from a place, which is where I'm at now, I get to do something I love every day. I work for a guy that I trust and respect and think really highly of. I love relationships with players. I love being on a college campus. I'm sure you guys feel the same way. Mm -hmm. There's nothing better than walking across a college campus and feeling the energy of kids on campus, walking by. Um, I love being around our players. And when you come, when, when you come at your, your work every day with, I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I'm grateful to coach in the SEC. I'm grateful to be with BK. I'm grateful to have the job that I have. Then I am a more effective teacher. I'm a more, I'm, I'm, ai am a better, I'm a better teammate to the other coaches. I'm a better director to the people that uh, on the staff that, that I work under or that work under me. So um, yeah, I think it has a lot to do with um Just your mindset. I'm going to choose to be grateful. I'm going to choose to be positive. I'm going to choose to be happy. And then I'm going to be mindful of taking care of myself, both mentally, physically, emotionally, so that I can be the best version of myself for our players. And, and I will leave. Um, I don't know if we're going to get the chance to bring this up. So I I want to do it now. Um, when when we talk about loving our players, people outside of athletics or teaching or they don't understand that concept. They roll their eyes. Like oh, you don't love 105 guys. No, I do. I don't yeah. like all 105. <laughs> right. There's a difference.
2: Well said, yeah. yeah.
0: We don't all we don't all mesh beautifully in personality and in likes and dislikes and all those things. But I believe that if I come in every day dedicated to serving them, what can I do to make this guy better? Whether it be as a person, a student, a player, whatever it is, if I act in service to the players that, that I work with every day, that is an expression of love. And when coaches and teachers, I love all my students. I don't like them all, but I love them all. And And when, you know, I believe that coming into this thing, being grateful and saying my mission is to love all these kids, then, then you, come, you start from a good place.
2: All right, I got to get one, before we do the final segment, Brian, yeah. I gotta, I've been dying to ask this of a, of a coach for the last few years. There's Uh-oh. been this growing appetite for inside the locker room, behind the scenes media access for these shows because of the, the streaming wars and, and the insatiable appetites of uh, consumers to learn more. So season with Notre Dame, I guess it was on Showtime. You probably know about QB1, which featured yeah. three QBs. I watched all that, which I thought was fascinating. Um, Last Chance You, the list goes on and on. The, F, the F1 thing, that's been a huge success on Netflix. What do you guys think of that? Having camera crews and producers come into your world, putting still another level of pressure, I would suppose, on everyone in the organization while you're trying to do your job?
0: I'm fascinated by it. I love watching all of it. I just had a conversation with Frank Reich about two weeks ago about the, the, um, about the cameras being hard knocks doing in season with the Colts. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm fascinated because I always want to see how other coaches talk to their teams. The soap opera part of it, I don't like. And, And if I were in charge of an organization, I would not want, cameras in, or if I did, I would have 100% editorial control.
2: Yeah. Good point. There
0: are a couple of things. First of all, we do work in a pretty masculine world and there are things that are said in our world that in the corporate world, people would have a stroke and fall out of a chair. And <laughs> for us, it's almost as though it's a shorthand, right? It's a way that we speak to each other. It's a way that we deal with each other. And when, when coaches and players during the season are with each other, in, in the amounts of times that we are, there are going to be disagreements and there's going to be confrontation. Confrontation is healthy, but people don't want to witness confrontation, right? It's, it's uncomfortable. Um, the other part of it, and, and I see this all the time, and I wonder if the public recognizes this. Sometimes my guess is no. You can always tell who's preening for the camera.
2: Yeah. yeah you can always
0: tell what coach, what player is acting in in performing yes (laughs) performing and and i've watched a couple of these and said well i'm not shocked by how that guy's acting right now (laughs) you know there are guys that and look maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm old school maybe we live in a world right now where if you want to advance to a certain degree you have to create a perception you have to create a brand um uh, i see it all the time uh but uh for me personally, that's not me, and and I've never been comfortable as a head coach at Nevada or as an assistant where plate where uh, you know I don't even like people in the meetings that I don't know who they are, let alone being recorded. So right. yeah, you, you know, I would not personally be comfortable with it. Now, if you if you want to look at a group that does not care that the cameras around, go watch anything on hockey. The hockey yeah. players could care less. Okay. <laughs> Which, I find I find wildly entertaining. So, but you know,
2: um, just a super quick follow up: do the do the players get a say? Like uh, that that whole Notre Dame thing that was done, that whole documentary. Did did the players agree to that? I
0: can't speak to that because I was not there at the time. Okay, Um, I know that a couple of them weren't. They weren't shy. I know that, (laughs) (laughs) right? Right. Yeah. Okay. uh, Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't speak to that.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. That was uh, yeah.
1: that was inter- interesting, Joe. So, la- last two questions: um, How do you stay up to date? I mean, you you know, you talk about hundred hour work weeks. Are there, are there newsletters you listen to? Motivational podcasts? Things that help you kind of stay stay in the moment with what's going on, so you can constantly evolve. And then the other thing is really short advice that you give, especially you've been around so many young people, Brian, who have transitioned away from the field and into the business world what's the advice you give them
0: well the the let's let's start with the the front end of it the i i am a podcast guy because i feel like i can there are certain times i am working i can have things on in the background my older brother christopher who works for washington um he and i will trade notes all the time um, uh, you know i'm talking to f- friends in in other you know Sean Sweeney, assistant basketball coach for the Dallas Mavericks, Um, you know, buddies in hockey, but, you know, I want to talk to people in in a, in a big cross section of of other sports and just compare notes. Um, I like to read, I'll try and carve out some time for, um, you know, the Bill Walsh book is, is, um, you know, is on my, is on my desk next to the coach's Bible it just travels with me from office to office. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there are some things that I will constantly go back to. I'll give you an example. I keep a gigantic binder of what I just call philosophy notes it might be an article that I photocopied and I highlight things, uh, handwritten notes, coach Parcells five, six years ago was, was so nice, spent two hours on the phone with me. And I'm, I'm typing in notes throughout the whole conversation. Well, I was faced with an, uh, a, a question in here, an issue here at LSU and stayed up here the other night till 10 o'clock on my couch, just paging through my binder. You know, I think I heard somebody talk about this. So um, not only will I stay current by talking to people across athletics and business, Greg Brown, people like that, but I also feel like there's wisdom in going back. in in the things that, uh, that I've learned before that caught my attention. My advice to young people, bloom where you're planted. I think every young person comes out, I see it all the time. Like the guy that we hire as an analyst to work with special teams wants to prove to you that I'm ready to be the special teams coordinator. I would rather you focus on being a phenomenal analyst and then the the talented people will present themselves. I think too often it becomes a race with, I'm going to prove to you why I am overqualified for what you're asking me to do. We young people need to, when given the opportunity, just bloom where you're planted, be great at what you do. And eventually, and it may not be in the time that you want, but talent is always recognized talent is always recognized. And then the last, the, the, the second piece to that is um, I think that generation Z specifically has gotten away from being proficient in interpersonal communication. Like everything's an email, everything's a text. You have to have the ability to sit in front of me and have an uncomfortable conversation. And we've got to be able to respect each other and, 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 be able to have that given interpersonal give and take. Um, I think simple kindness has uh, unfortunately gone out of, uh, out of style. And that is something that I will harp on as long as I'm working with young people. How hard is it to say thank you? How hard is it to go into this unbelievable performance nutrition center that we have here at LSU? And you're, you're looking at somebody that's working for above, min, slightly above minimum wage making your food, and it costs us 10 seconds to say, hey, thank you. I appreciate what you do. I'm very grateful. And the effect that that can have on a person that might be having a bad day, and all of a sudden, yeah. you show a simple kindness. I think the handwritten note is a lost art. You know, a hand... Uh, w- w- when when a young person will send me, I meet somebody at the convention, say, okay, let's have a 20 minute conversation. And two weeks later, I get a handwritten thank you note that person has made an impression on me. And that was something that my dad talked about for me growing up, like take the time to write a a handwritten thank you or appreciate it. You know? So there, I think there are just some, some little things that have gone out of style that maybe should not have that, that I think, as young people now are entering the workforce and entering the professional world, if you want to separate yourself, these are little ways that that you create impressions.
1: Cool, outstanding. wrap this up, Tom.
2: Yeah, uh, Brian Pullian, thank you so much. Wow, um, yeah. really, really appreciate your uh, your insights and thoughts on on such an important topic that uh, I think will will be valuable to a lot of listeners. <laughs> Uh, who are in positions of management and business, who are coaching, even if you're a casual coach in the suburbs, you know, coaching soccer or basketball or something like that. Mm. I I think these lessons are ones that, frankly, uh, I would say this to Joe, um, we're older than you, we've been around this business a long time, that, frankly, a lot of older people have not thought about really fully. Maybe they've they've heard mention of it or or they've thought about it um, kind of superficially. But it does feel like we're on the verge and, and you are the, one of the leaders of this, of kind of rethinking how we manage and interact with people because of the changes that have resulted from the development of our world with technology, with media, uh, et cetera, the discussions around mental health. So all those things kind of come to, to fruition, I think, in in what you're doing. So um, I, I would say thank you for all, for all your, um, knowledge on, on this topic
1: and for sharing it with everybody else in the business. Hey, hey, Brian, I have one more question before we go, because I forgot oh, to ask. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and, and it goes back to where you were before, um, and then we can wrap it up. I saw three headlines this past week, the Olympics just finished about a joyless Olympics. How do you bring joy? I, it, it blew me away that, that, first of all, anybody could actually write that, and it's a disservice to the athletes who had tremendous joy during the Olympics. But- how do you bring uh, joy to make sure that these young people understand that joy is so important and what it is that they're doing in their lives?
0: Well, we start one of the first things I'll say when, when we meet as a whole team with this and addressing special teams and we talk to the coaches about this football is a game. It's played by kids. It's meant to be fun. It, we're not digging ditches here. I mean, it, it could be far worse in our lives than going out and getting to compete. I also think that, that, look, we got to find ways to create smiles. We got to keep them interacting with one another. We got to put a Nerf hoop in the meeting room and let them come in and put up jump shots and play horse. We got to, uh, on Thursdays after a win at Notre Dame, it was it was donuts that that I paid for. And, and they know coming into the Thursday meeting um, that, that we're going to, that everybody's going to get a Krispy Kreme. And if it's a really big win, we had, Rise and roll, the Amish Bakery, which would run me about mm. 700 bucks for 18 dozen. But they know, hey, we beat USC. It's a rising. They would say it on Monday, Monday afternoon, coach, this is a rise and roll week. Right. So, um, you know, reminding them to be grateful to one another. Like on third, at the end of the Thursday special teams meeting, it was tell your teammate you love them Thursday. And we would put music on. Wow, they great. would all stand up. And If anybody's been raised Catholic, it looked like uh, the sign of peace on steroids. They're running up and down the the aisles. They're jumping on each other, hugging each other. Um, I think it's important to, they want to have fun. They want to interact with one another. They, They don't want to feel like this is a 40 hour a week job. So It is our job in order for them to be their best. It's our job to create that atmosphere and create opportunities for them to find joy.
1: There you go. And that's how we ended Tom. Really?
2: (laughs) Not much more to say than that. Uh, Brian Polling, Thanks so much. By the way, I just realized you're on Twitter Uh, for everybody listening. It's at Brian Polling. That's P O L I A N in case you didn't know. Um, Brian works at LSU as a special teams coach and recruiting coordinator, I guess, uh, recruiter. Um, Brian, thank you again on behalf of Columbia. This has been a terrific conversation. Um, and I'm um, I'm gonna be recommending this book to a lot of friends and acquaintances because I feel like uh, people really, well, definitely the, listen to the podcast, but the book as well to go a little bit deeper because this is a key topic I think we all have to address and fully embrace. So thank you again for sharing your insights. Um, Thanks Sam behind the scenes for producing. Thanks Joe. Good good uh, another mm-hmm. good show. We've been on a roll. So uh thanks Brian. We'll see everybody in the next episode.